<clears throat> Without further ado, I'm going to bring James Stahl to introduce today's speaker, who many of you who've been here needs no major introduction, but we are so delighted to have Hal Sox back. Hal was our chair of medicine here for the years 1988 to 2001. Uh, among so many other things that Hal has done, he's left a great imprint on our institution. James is an associate professor of medicine and director, our section chief of general internal medicine, and James will tell us about Hal's background. Thanks, Rich. And uh, I promised Hal I'd try to be short, but uh, when you introduce Hal Sox, that's kind of difficult. Um, so uh, it is really with great pleasure that uh, I'll introduce Hal to those of you the very few of you, I think, that may not know him. Um, I was actually introduced to Hal for the very first time um, when I was uh, through his writing, through when I was a clinical uh, fellow in clinical decision analysis and medical informatics at Tufts, and when I first read Hal's book on medical decision-making, which was uh, profound and, and transformative in the area. Um, I then had the pleasure of meeting Hal through uh, the Society for Medical Decision-Making, which he has been a pillar of for a long time. And I have to say, every time I've known Hal over the years, he's been invariably gracious and uh, thoughtful and has offered me on occasion uh, terrific career advice, which I very much appreciate. <laughs> Actually, you know, Hal's one of the reasons I'm here, honestly. Um, I was really not aware of Tufts as a place to be until Hal actually introduced it to me. Um, so again, just to, I, I want to be uh, uh, fairly brief here. So uh, Hal's a general internist, clinical epidemiologist, researcher, administrator. He's got 45 years of experience in all of these things, has made a profound impact on, on much of our health care. Um, he graduated from Stanford, just a little tidbit, uh, in graduate of physics. I'm happy to, to learn that actually we actually share that as well. I studied physics undergraduate as well. Um, and uh, from there, he went on to uh, uh, um, medical school, um, NIH fellowship, came back to Dartmouth for being chief resident, and then went back to Stanford to be division chief there for general internal medicine and ambulatory care. And then um, he came back, and as Rich said, he has spent the next 13 years as chief of our Department of Medicine and left a great impact on, on the people and the organization that's here. Um, after that, um, many of you know he's been editor of Annals of Internal Medicine. Um, he's been president of the American College of Physicians. He's chaired uh, the USPTF. Uh, he has done any number of numerous things, um, ranging from the Institute of Medicine, uh, chairing many committees there and elected to uh, the Institute of Medicine. And uh, most recently, he has been a leader in uh, uh, PCORI. Um, and I think he will talk a little bit about some of the work related to that. So with... <laughs> Uh, without further ado, uh, Dr. Sox.
Can you hear me better now? Can you hear him, Mike? Not in the room. Oh, jeez. Okay, okay. We've got the podium mic on. Thank you. I'll I'll use this, right? Okay. Great. Uh, So we're going to start off by talking about some of the milestones uh, in developing the scientific basis for scientific practice. And then we'll talk about uh, prostate cancer screening in some detail and touch relatively briefly on colorectal cancer screening. So off we go. Um, I'm not here representing Pecora, speaking for myself, uh, not receiving an honorarium. Um, So everything's on the up and up. Uh, so here, here's the list of, um, <clears throat> of major advances that really underlie the scientific basis of practice that we <clears throat> um, increasingly uh, do in modern-day medicine. <clears throat> and we're going to go down each one of them and talk briefly about it and what it actually means. And I'm hoping that the few interns that actually could break away from their duties uh, that are here will take this away as a, uh, as a solid basis for discussion on rounds about, well, where'd the evidence come from uh, for, the, for the things that uh, they're doing? So we'll start with a randomized trial. Um, and the... Uh, Sorry to watch you. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to turn that microphone off. Uh-huh. I've got a problem in the, oh, okay. the tech world. Okay, so I can just abandon this altogether. Great. Sorry about that. So um, the randomized trial is a breakthrough basically because it deals with a problem of confounding. Um, In a a situation which, at least in medical practice, the things that lead us to choose a treatment for a patient are also the things that tend to influence the outcome. So you're not sure whether, you, when you see an effect of an intervention, whether it's the prognostic factors that are driving that, or the treatment, or some unknown mix of both. Random allocation breaks that link between the choice of treatment and prognosis. 
and it distributes the prognostic factors that influence outcome, both the measured ones and the unmeasured one. That's the miracle of randomization uh, between the compared groups. And in an adequately sized trial, you can be pretty confident that um, uh, the, any difference in outcome is due to the intervention. I read recently that only 20% of randomized trials published in major journals actually had less than 10% missing data. And uh, something like 40% have as much as 60% missing data, which creates problems. So this is just a quick reminder of what's going on. Uh, in an observational study, the, um, the items, oh, shoot, the items in blue, which are patients with an unobserved marker for bad outcomes, um, are distributed unequally between uh, two treatments, um, treatment A and treatment B. But in a randomized trial, those are distributed uh, evenly between both. Now, this is reality, but this is what you see. You can't really tell which ones have got a bad prognosis and which ones don't, so you can't look at the outcomes according to their prognosis. Uh, but again, thanks to the miracle of randomization, it's all done for you automatically. Um, so that's why randomization is so important. Uh, small area variation in practice, something that began at University of Vermont and has continued uh, uh, here at Dartmouth for many years now. Uh, and it's only one of several breakthroughs that have Dartmouth fingerprints uh, all over them. So small area variation is what we see here, a 1.6-fold variation in total Medicare uh, exp uh, spending across five different sized um, equal-sized equal uh, uh, hospital uh, referral areas. And why is that important? Well, uh, it pretty much proves that just because you have access to care doesn't mean you're going to get the standard high-quality care that you expect. It also, uh, as uh, uh, Elliot points out, it also compels us to ask why should doctors who have this wonderful education end up going in such divergent directions uh, once they get into practice. So uh, clinical practice guidelines um, are defined here in the rather awkward language of the um, Institute of Medicine, and we'll spend more time on that, but just to say that it's uh, informed by a systematic review of the evidence and deals with trying to balance harms and benefits. And the reasons that's important is that practice guidelines try to define the best treatment based on the best evidence rather than historically, which was the case back even when I started to practice of my clinical experience. And they're also a necessary step in making sure that people with access to care actually do get the best treatments uh, for them. Systematic reviews, another huge uh, breakthrough in the systematization of uh, the search for scientific practice. And uh, this is an Institute of Medicine uh, committee on uh, trying to develop standards for uh, uh, systematic reviews. A systematic review is scientific investigation 
focusing on a specific question and using scientific methods uh, to basically identify which evidence is reliable and which isn't. And that's important uh, because it's a key step in developing an unbiased definition of the best evidence. And here we're using the term bias in the sense of systematic error. What's next? Shared decision-making. Dartmouth fingerprints all over that. And here's Dartmouth's definition of shared decision-making, making the collaboration between patients and caregivers to come to agreement about uh, what health care the patient will receive. And uh, here's a quote from an article that Shelley Greenfield and I wrote for JAMA. When fully informed patients make an evidence-based decision, they maximize their future Welfare. This is kind of a, a framing of expected value decision-making, and this is really true. So it's a tremendously powerful argument for talking to your patients and eliciting their preferences for the outcomes that they may face. And it's a, a shared decision-making is a breakthrough because a discussion of the possible outcomes of a decision is really an integral part of shared decision-making, which really gives the patient an opportunity to make their preferences count in the choice of treatment that they receive. And finally, uh, one that maybe not so many of you have heard about, individual patient-level uh, meta-analysis. Basically, this happens when a bunch of uh, principal investigators of comparable trials get together and say, let's pool our data, let's put it all into one big pot, and then analyze the data. And the reason that this is important is that when you, you get a huge pot of data, uh, you, you have statistical power to detect treatment differences in clinically important subgroups. And that really is the key to evidence-based individualized care. Uh, we at PCORI uh, have treatment response heterogeneity, which is the uh, name for this, um, as a key part of our striving and the studies that we do. But frankly, it's very difficult to accomplish because it costs so much to get a, enough data uh, to be able to make uh, high-powered comparisons in subgroups. And so that's why individual-level meta-analysis is a breakthrough. And, and finally, comparative effectiveness research. You knew that had to somehow find its way in here. Um, characteristics of uh, comparative effectiveness research is defined by an institution of medicine committee that chose the 100 most important questions for comparative effectiveness uh, to address. It does address key decisional dilemmas, things that really bother patients and their providers. It involves the use of representative study populations and clinicians, head-to-head -head comparison of interventions that really pose a problem because they're in active use and people can't decide which one is best, outcomes that matter to patients, and this helps to achieve this goal of individualized, evidence-based decision-making. Why is it a breakthrough? Well, first point is that it's not new. NIH has been funding studies that meet those criteria for a long time. All Hat, for example, um, compared the three 
standards uh, first-line drugs uh, for hypertension in, in a famous enormous study. Um, what Bakari does, uh, thanks to the wisdom of the U.S. Congress uh, and the Obama administration, uh, is to um, systematize the effort to generate evidence that addresses the burning clinical questions of the day. So we really go out and we talk to stakeholders and we ask, okay, what are the questions that are really bugging the doctors and, and, the, and their patients? Uh, and then we issue a funding announcement, pick the best study, and wait to see what happens. So PCORI, therefore, is a program of comparative effectiveness research. So here are seven advances, and I... Uh, Remind myself that I missed one. I wonder if anybody knows what it is. No. Well, um, the one I missed was Bayes' theorem. And Bayes' theorem is probably why I'm standing up here instead of listening to somebody else give this talk. And that dates back to 1750 or so. And the Reverend Bayes, who was so, uh, lacked such confidence in his reasoning that he actually left his key findings in a, in a desk drawer and they were discovered by his family after his death. So, goody for Bayes. Okay, so um, we're going to focus on clinical practice guidelines and the reason for doing that uh, is that it's this, of these steps, it's the one that's most immediately proximal to decisions that actually change practice, whether they're in individual patients or in uh, clinical policy. So just a few words about guidelines. Um, I've kind of been in the guideline business since it started back in 1980, and guidelines uh, were kind of well-meaning, but they were uh, ignored. Uh, for probably the first 15 or 20 years. But since then, they've become uh, quite uh, influential as people have been more and more concerned about the cost of health care uh, and the quality of health care and trying to maximize uh, the latter and minimize the former. So they're important because they influence insurance coverage, they influence practice measures, they influence quality of care improvement goals, and these are things that really shape the practice environment uh, for all of us. But the recommendations are susceptible to bias, and that's a whole other talk. But just to say that uh, conflict of interest problems are rife uh, in uh, developing practice guidelines. Um, selective use of evidence, and one that we are going to focus on a bit, is assessing the balance of harms and benefits is uh, really an apples and oranges uh, comparison. It's a difficult comparison, yet the recommendations, as we'll see in the prostate cancer story, uh, really hinge upon this really entirely subjective effort to try to see how they balance out. So here's the way that you go about making uh, practice guidelines. First you choose a topic, then you form a guidelines panel, uh, then you define the key questions that need to be addressed uh, in uh, evaluating the evidence, 
and then you do a systematic review of the evidence for each of these key questions. Key questions like how accurate is the test, how effective is the treatment, what are the, ad uh, the adverse effects of the treatment and the test, things of this sort. Um, and then uh, you try to weigh the harms and the benefits and finally uh, make a recommendation. And all this reminding you is really standing on the shoulders of what we talked about in the first 15 minutes to all this accumulation of scientific methods to address the generation of scientific practice. So uh, here's an example. The U.S. task force is generally considered to be the uh, most forward-thinking and uh, thoughtful of all the guidelines programs. Um, and it uh, uh, has a system for uh, grading the evidence as good fair or poor, and actually almost all the evidence falls into the fair category, so it's really not terribly discriminatory. Uh, and then they rate their recommendations, A, B, C, I, or D. And the point I'd like to focus on is that they're really talking about high certainty of net benefit, moderate certainty of net benefit, um, and um, so forth. So the net benefit is really uh, playing a role in, this, in the task force guidelines. So uh, the Institute of Medicine, uh, now the National Academy of Medicine, uh, confer, uh, convened a, a committee to basically develop uh, standards for guidelines that we can trust, which is the title of their report. And the um, the key things are, first of all, managing panel members and sponsors' conflicts of interest, doing a systematic review of the evidence, describing the logic that connects the evidence to the recommendations, that's sort of a transparency piece, and finally, uh, describing the magnitude of the benefits and harms and discuss the balance between them in order to come to a recommendation. So that's sort of the heart of good practice in guideline development. So uh, now we're going to head into a discussion of uh, prostate cancer screening and start getting down into the evidence. Um, and uh, I'm going to compare the 2012 recommendations with the ones that are uh, just about ready to be announced uh, in, in 2017 and try to draw some lessons about what the task force might have learned uh, in taking this journey. So we'll first talk about 2011-2012. So in uh, 2011 and 12, uh, the way they went about it was they said surgery, first of all, effectiveness of treatment, and now they're talking about the evidence in that time, which was the, mostly a, a, a Scandinavian trial comparing uh, surgery versus watchful waiting in patients with prostate cancer, mostly discovered by rectal examination, so not rather than PSA. Um, and that showed that in patients over 65, the survival curves were superimposable, and in uh, patients under 65, those who got radical prostatectomy uh, uh, 
had uh, lower prostate cancer uh, death rates. Uh, screening, there were two trials, uh, PSA screening, the United States trial uh, showed no effect on prostate cancer mortality, but there was an enormous amount of patients assigned to not getting PSA screening, getting PSA screening, and um, so that the results of that study are certainly, I think, in doubt. The European trial had a lot less of that type of crossover and showed overall a 22% reduction in prostate cancer mortality. But that study has also had its share of careful scrutiny, and Gil, you may want to uh, enlarge on that, on that point. <laughs> uh, oh, good. That's, that's, that's preemption. That's preemption in action, folks. Um, <laughs> um, and then the harms, and these are now based on practice in the 1990s and even earlier. Uh, urinary incontinence, uh, a big bump up, and erectile dysfunction, also a big bump uh, after surgery. So that's what they had to, do, had to contend with. And uh, what they said was, and this bears some careful reading, uh, the task force said, assessing the balance and benefits and harms requires weighing a moderate to high probability, talk about precision, of pers persistent harm from treatment against the low probability of preventing a death from prostate cancer uh, in the long term. And they concluded that there's moderate certainty that the benefits of PSA screening out do not outweigh the harms. Now, my uh, editorial comment is how on earth did they make this judgment of the balance of adverse effects uh, versus extra years of life, since it's clearly an apples and oranges uh, uh, comparison. The incidence of various side effects that have different meaning to different patients on the one hand and extra months or years of life on the other. And their recommendation, which pivoted on this, what I would call uh, very difficult to make uh, assessment, was to not screen. And of course, they caught a lot of flack from that, uh, and uh, the Congress began to think that maybe they needed to get more specialists on the task force, and, and, and in general, it's been a very, for the task point point of view, task force's point of view, it's been a very uh, disruptive um, uh, recommendation, and they paid a price for it. Um, so uh, I want to talk, uh, describe briefly a study that was published in uh, the New England Journal in 2011 or 12, uh, the, where the European Cooperative Trial uh, a PSA screening group actually did a modeling uh, in which they tried to estimate the quality-adjusted life years uh, that would be gained by PSA screening. So they used utilities for the outcomes that people who uh, uh, have screening uh, under, under experience. From the literature, uh, they used data from the uh, European cooperative trial, and um, they calculated the quality-adjusted life years uh, to be gained or lost uh, from screening, taking into account the wide variation in utilities for things like urinary incontinence and erectile dysfunction. Uh, and uh, this is what they found. I think I've shown this slide before here at a Grand Rounds about three years ago. So, uh, 
And what they, if they just looked at the effect on survival, um, is this thing working? Yeah. Not very well. Well, over on the right, the survival effects, you would actually gain uh, 72 uh, life years. I think it's per 1,000 patient years or something like that. Uh, if you adjusted for the effects on health, which really reflect the utilities that patients have for these outcomes, then you actually get to a situation uh, where, um, which are described in that, um, damn, why isn't this thing working? There it is. Uh, so this takes into account the utilities patients have for the outcomes, and when you combine these two, you get the net effects, which were minus 21 qualities to plus 97 qualities. So what that says is that a lot of patients benefit a great deal from prostate cancer screening, but there are some people, those who fear um, uh, the adverse effects, for which are actually going to lose um, uh, quality-adjusted life years. Uh, this study did not provide a distribution, so we really don't know what proportion of the patients are on which side of zero uh, qualities, uh, but it, um, it basically, I thought, totally undercut the, um, uh, the conclusion of the task force. And I, as a former chair of the task force in an editorial, said that the task force basically got, the, got it wrong. So what did the task force do? So, um, so let's now, I, what I'd like to do now is to talk about what a decision aid for shared decision making on prostate cancer might look like, and that's going to take us to the current recommendations, which, just to give you uh, uh, a preview, are that shared decision making should be the norm. So a decision aid uh, for uh, helping to make shared decision making about prostate cancer screening with PSA uh, should include um, the options that are open, which would include robotic surgery, not the old kind. Uh, we'll take a pass on whether robotic surgery is any better than the old kind. Uh, Sandra, you want to comment on that? <laughs> uh, uh, intensity mod modulated radiation therapy. And again, I don't know whether it's actually better than the old kind, but maybe it has less ad adverse effects. Brachytherapy, and of course, um, uh, active surveillance, where you actually follow the prostate, and if you start to see uh, growth, then you uh, make a decision about what to do next. Uh, so those are the options. The benefits are uh, prostate cancer mortality, uh, metastatic disease, and the avoidance of adverse effects, which include erectile dysfunction, urinary incontinence, urinary obstruction and irritation, and uh, lower bowel irritation and symptoms. So what about the effects on, on mortality? There have been two uh, trials, uh, one that came out not long after the task force issued its 2012 recommendations. Uh, that's the Wilt et al. trial, uh, which um, involved 13,000 men, of whom 5,000 were eligible and 731 were randomized, 
to surgery or observation. And this is, as near as I could tell from reading the article, this is really observation. There was not active surveillance, in, in my opinion. Um, and the primary outcome is prostate cancer deaths over a median 12 of 10 years. The Hamdi study, which is more recently, that's the one called PROTEC, um, uh, screened 80,000 men to identify 2,600 patients potentially eligible, of whom 1,640 were randomized. Uh, and their, again, their primary outcome was prostate cancer death over a median fall of 10 years. And the next slide is sort of confusing because I made it in a hurry. Um, but let's try to walk through it. So the, the results at the, my aim is really not very good with this thing. Is there, where is it? Well, no matter, no matter. Um, so the Hamdi study, uh, uh, active monitoring is the here, surgery, radiation therapy, and these were the uh, prostate cancer deaths per thousand person years. And basically, they're all pretty similar. Um, none of them are statistically significant, and as a group, there's no statistical difference uh, be between them. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Better. Thank you. Uh, the WILT study used a different outcome, prostate cancer mortality, in 10 years, and they showed a difference that actually was also not statistically significant with a hazard ratio of 0.63 for death uh, with, um, uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, for surgery. Um, they also looked at metastatic uh, disease, and here there was a pretty definite uh, indication that active monitoring was associated uh, with, uh, with more uh, metastatic disease in 10 years uh, for both, in both the Wilt study and the Hamdi study. So these would be the major options now, radiation therapy, surgery, active monitoring, Basically, not a lot of difference uh, between them in terms of 10-year outcomes. Uh, now, the latest uh, evidence on hard harms um, was uh, published uh, two studies back-to-back, -back, one by Chen et al., the other by Penson and colleagues. Uh, these were funded by PCORI, so it was a great day for PCORI, our first... Uh, our first articles in a, in, a, in a really major impact journal. Uh, it was based on clinical practice in 2011 to 2014. So this is not practice in the 90s. This is the kind of practice you're doing uh, here uh, at, at Dartmouth. And the interventions were robotic surgery, intensively mo intensity modulated radiotherapy, and, um, and watchful waiting. So I picked out the Chen study because I was actually the project officer for this study. Uh, and it was a population-based cohort of 11,041 patients in North, North Carolina where they have a system whereby they basically register everybody who undergoes uh, prostate uh, treatment for prostate cancer. Uh, 
or that actually has a diagnosis of prostate cancer. Um, and so it's very population-based. 86% had, had Gleason scores of six or less, and this is the uh, distribution of people across the various treatments. And the outcome is something called the Prostate Cancer Symptom Index, which is basically questions in those four domains that I uh, mentioned in the earlier slide. And just to point out, we had two, 209 patients that had no follow-up data, which has been a problem for the project officer. And here's the results, which I've portrayed graphically because I thought that might be kind of a neat way to show patients at a glance what the various trajectories of symptoms are uh, after treatment with these various options. So here are the different elements of that prostate cancer symptom index, and here are the treatments. And uh, for active surveillance, in general, things tend to get worse over time, except for the bowel problem. Radiation therapy, they're worse, and then in general get somewhat better over time. Uh, brachytherapy, generally sharply worse, but then get quite almost back to baseline. And with uh, surgery, major reduction in sexual uh, erectile function that basically doesn't get very better. Uh, so here's something that you might see in a... <coughs> and a decision aid to help people make up their mind about uh, what, what they want to do about, about early stage prostate cancer. So um, to wrap up this part of the talk, of the draft guidelines, uh, which uh, I don't think have been published yet, recognize basically individualized decision making after discussion with the clinician and all the, good, all the right words, so that each man has an opportunity to understand the potential benefits and harms of screening and to incorporate his values and preferences into his decision. I mean, that could have been written at Dartmouth. It's really great. <laughs> so what lessons did, should perhaps the task force have learned from this experience? Um, well, first of all, the harms versus benefits, subjective assessment <coughs> is really no substitute for evidence, first of all. I don't know if they really learned this lesson, but I hope they have. Um, people do vary in their feelings about key drivers of decisions <coughs> as reflected in the distribution of utilities for the health states that you might experience downstream from prostate cancer screening. The balance of harms and benefits paradigm seems logical until you really try to use it. Um, and I wonder whether maybe it's outlived its use. Either we should do it right along the lines of what I showed you in the European uh, cooperative study, uh, or we should discard it and come up with a better one. Um, and finally, Widely varying preferences for outcome states is probably a signal for using uh, shared decision-making. And last but not least, politics matters. Uh, and unfortunately, particularly because the recommendations of, of guideline panels are so closely tied to funding, the stakes are really high. Uh, and, uh, and I think the prostate cancer 
community um, really got on the, on the back of the task force, mainly through their uh, representatives in Congress. So now we're going to end up uh, uh, talking very briefly about colorectal cancer screening guidelines. It's always good to remind ourselves that colorectal cancer is the second leading cause of cancer death, way behind lung cancer, but ahead of a lot of other cancers that get a lot more press, like prostate cancer and breast cancer. Uh, the U.S. Task Force first recommended screening in FOBT in 1986, and I can tell you, because I was in the room, uh, that we were very nervous about making this recommendation, and we actually had the uh, person who was the PI in the Minnesota Cooperative Trial of, of uh, FOBT testing come to us and spend the morning explaining the data. We finally said, I guess we've really got to recommend this. So uh, a brief rundown on the effects of different screening modalities on colorectal cancer mortality. Low sensitivity chemical FOBT, multiple trials in the 1980s, with now as much as 30-year follow-up for the Minnesota uh, Cooperative Study uh, showing really big impact, a relative risk of, of uh, just slightly under 0.7 of death from colorectal cancer uh, on patients who are screened annually, and uh, every other year, results not quite so good. Uh, rigid sigmoidoscopy, the famous uh, study by my boss, Joe Selby, uh, case control study showing odds ratio for colorectal cancer mortality within reach of the scope of 0.4. And here, the control group is where the scope wouldn't reach. And there was no effect of screening uh, in the parts of the colon that the sigmoidoscope couldn't reach, which meant that the, some of the things like healthy volunteer bias and so forth weren't op operative. And then there have been four trials of rigid sigmoidoscopy, an individual level patient meta-analysis uh, recently done showed a reduction in incidence of colorectal cancer uh, as well as a difference in mortality. And of course, the incidence is because you find polyps that were destined to become cancers and you take them out before they become cancers. And that's certainly one of the strong arguments for uh, screening with something that enables you to see it and then get rid of it uh, in one fell swoop. Uh, fecal immunochemical testing has, I think, pretty much become the standard now. There have been no randomized trials, but I think everybody assumes that the results in terms of impact on mortality would be uh, similar to that for the uh, chemical test uh, for hemoglobin that's been studied so carefully. Colonoscopy, there are three trials comparing a colonoscopy versus FIT are in progress. And I think you all know that Geisel faculty member Doug Robertson at the VA is the co-chair of CONFIRM, uh, the VA uh, cooperative study. That's a really big deal for, for Dartmouth. And finally, uh, stool DNA, which we're going to talk about a bit, uh, is uh, there have been no trials. So let's talk about fecal DNA. Uh, and there has been a, uh, first of all, it's uh, developed by a company named Exact Sciences Incorporated. And reportedly, the overall, the company has spent upwards of a billion dollars 
developing the various generations of, uh, of these uh, fecal DNA tests. And the first generation test, which uh, Annals published in 2008, the sensitivity for what they call screen-relevant neoplasms was only 45%, really quite low. Sensitivity uh, for adenomas that were more larger than one centimeter was about 45%, and the false positive rate was really bad, 16%. So the company basically withdrew the, man, uh, the test and went back to the drawing board. The second generation DNA test, um, com uh, the, the study that was performed by Tom Imperiali et al, compared fecal immune uh, testing with a test for a mutated gene versus fecal immune testing alone. So fecal immune uh, test for blood was a part of the uh, active in, uh, intervention that was being tested. Uh, they had almost 10,000 average risk adults scheduled for screening colonoscopy, so a typical screening population had stool DNA test and the immunological test for the uh, fit. Um, then they collected the, school, the stool for testing right before they did the bowel prep for colonoscopy, so there's no delay here to uh, uh, make it more difficult to interpret. And um, here's the results. So positive if cancer basically means the sensitivity of the test for cancer, the pickup rate for cancer, and it was much higher than this, the early generation test, 92% sensitivity statistically significantly higher than FIT, although this seems like a pretty low sensitivity for FIT, but these investigators are, are really good. Uh, this is the one that's really important. I think the, the, the sensitivity for picking up a high-risk adenoma was 40% versus only 24% for FIT. So this is how you prevent cancers to pick up these high-risk adenomas. Uh, Polyp, uh, po uh, sensitivity for polyp with high-grade dysplasia, 70% versus 46%. And for uh, positive for if a serrated sessile polyp, another high-risk lesion, 42% versus 5%. So the thing that the fecal DNA test is good for doing is picking up trouble before it really becomes trouble. However, look at this, false False positive rate, 13% versus 5%, 11 percent uh, versus 3%. Uh, so you're screening a population which the prevalence of cancer is about 1 in 1,000, roughly. And so 99 people are eligible for those false positive results. You got roughly 15% getting false positive. So you're generating 100 to 150 colonoscopies uh, to pick up the one patient with cancer. So that, so that a false positive rate when screening for a rare disease is really a big problem. However, some people would say that colonoscopy is a real benefit for the patient. Right, Rich? Okay. <laughs> okay. So. So here's the recommendation beforehand, before the public comment period. The task, here's what they did. They created 
categories of similar interventions like direct inspection, FOBT, combined strategies, radiologic imaging, and fecal DNA testing. They used a micro simulation model to calculate um, both quality adjusted life years, but also uh, the cost in terms of number of colonoscopies required to achieve uh, gain in quality adjusted life years. And they came up with basically four strategies, or three strategies, that were basically equivalent. Flexi-sig plus annual fit was the best intervention among this group of combined studies. Fecal immune testing was the best among the various tests for blood in the stool, and colonoscopy was sort of the, the reference standard. Then they listed a couple of alternative tests that were not as efficient um, in <coughs> colonography and fecal DNA, and they published this. And um, uh, there was uh, a lot of pushback. Um, it said that a lot of the pushback uh, was, uh, uh, or, uh, was orchestrated by exact sciences. Um, and the uh, final uh, recommendation uh, was five things that were considered to be roughly equivalent, um, two that we've already seen, two that were in this sort of other category that was not as efficient, uh, and then finally, two that were really way down, way down the uh, list. And from this, they basically developed a recommendation of here are a bunch of tests that are roughly equivalent. Uh, the really important thing is that the patient be willing to do the test. And so you should inform the patient about the characteristics of the various tests and the experience of the various tests and let them decide since it's really almost a wash between these five strategies. That's basically what they were saying. So well, bottom line uh, from this experience and the bottom line for the talk, uh, first of all, politics does matter. Uh, the task force has been feeling a lot of pressure, and there have been a number of editorials about this, of the task force's judgment being in some way uh, compromised by uh, political pressure basically related to a too tight connection between their recommendations and big money for somebody. Uh, uh, shared decision-making, which is really a new type of recommendation from the task force, uh, seems like it could be a good recommendation. If the choice is between tests with uh, different patient experiences, but basically fairly similar impact, um, or when the choice is between treatments uh, that are roughly similar, uh, but uh, have different adverse effects in the case of prostate cancer. And finally, a good lesson for all of us to remember uh, and to conclude with, the best test is the one that gets done. So given roughly equivalent accuracy, uh, the best test is the one that aligns with the patient preferences. And with that, we conclude with a little time for questions. Thank you. cancer screening, there were three words you didn't mention that have been part of 
recommendations, at least from American Cancer Society, going back to the 90s, and that's remaining life expectancy. How does that figure in to some of these later recommendations? Because that wasn't meant, you didn't mention that. So life expectancy? Remaining life expectancy. Well, I think that's wrapped up in the notion of quality-adjusted life years. The dip, a difference in quality-adjusted life years is basically saying, you have this many more days, weeks, months, or years. If you choose this alternative, it's going to be something. But qualities get a little bit more complicated to apply when you're dealing with people in their late 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, and in people with significant comorbidity at younger ages. So can you comment on that, that there are some questions concerns about using qualities in particularly an older group of men and whom we have seen continued significant prevalence of PSA testing. Sure. Well, I think this comes partly from the notion of penalizing older people who have less life years, not so much the quality part, it's the life year part. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if you have less Qualities. If you're old, you're, you're, you're going to die soon, so why do it anyway? And I think that uh, that came up a fair amount during the uh, congressional discussion about uh, creating PCORI mm -hmm. and the notion of guidelines. And that's one reason that PCORI cannot issue guidelines or even allow the slightest hint that the results might be used in practice guidelines because it's written right in the law. I think that where you're a reflection of your concern and sort of the political Because actually I'm a geriatrician, and so the concern is not so much penalizing older men, but not over screening or over treating older men. Oh, thank you for the comment. So, yes. Um, as in so many of these things, the large group probabilistic approach works great for the um, society at large, but at the individual patient care level or patient decision level, um, of which I have both for both of these issues, um, you know, on an ongoing basis, it's very hard to find the correct tools to apply at an individual level, other than the what would you do, doc, sort of uh, approach that you hear a lot. And uh, where's that going? You know, I mean, to, to, to deal with the statistics of um, and, and the changing guidelines of, of prostate cancer screening, for example, um, as we go every five years all over the place, um, how, do you, how do you advise patients and, and to say which, which way they should go? I'm not the last person in the room that I'll be answering that now. I don't know whether you want to respond. But, but, but my response would be, you provide the patient with the information that hopefully applies to them, and uh, they eyeball it. And if they're fully informed, I think there's a good argument that the decision they make is the right decision for them, and it will actually be result in whatever they want, more of it. I think quite often you end up in a, in a, in a situation of equipoise uh, from, from what the, the harms and benefits are, because you are comparing apples and oranges. And, uh, um, and the various experiences within your own family or people that you know and can change those and bias, bias those decisions and, 
and in ways that I'm not sure are, are, are really rational. Well, just, just quickly, what I used to regularly say to patients is, look, here's a test that we can do. Um, um, when I was 50, I estimated that I had about a 6% chance of having a cancer that I would want to find in my prostate. And if I did the test and it was negative, it would go from 6% to 4%. I can sleep well at 4%, I can sleep well at 6%. If I did a test and it was positive, it would go from 6% to about 13%, but then it would be about a 30% chance that we'd find a cancer if we did a biopsy, because I'd find all these cancers that I wouldn't necessarily want to because they were just too small to think that they were So a conversation like that is actually quite easy to have. And then you can say another back of the envelope as opposed to lots of decimal points. Um, probability of a, of, of a white American male like me of having prostate cancer by the time I get into my 70s is roughly 70%. The probability of having it knowing it is roughly 10%. Having it knowing it, I know it, 3%. Okay. Now, what happens if I choose to be screened? The probability of having it doesn't go down. The probability of having it and knowing it goes from 10% to 20% on average 10 years earlier. So the area under that curve increases about fourfold. But if you do it visually and you estimate a 30% reduction, that's incredibly aggressive. That's the old equivalent to demography. You can't even tell the difference between the 3% and the lot, 2.3% of people. So, why don't guidelines express that? <laughs> <laughs> Too easy. You just got the catalog for you. <laughs> <laughs> this is one more of a general question since you have a lot of experience in this. Now, there are guidelines after guidelines after guidelines now. And it gets kind of bewildering when you're in practice to figure out which one, and nobody really has time to read all of these. Is there any thought of almost a guideline for guidelines or an endorsement <laughs> policy so we can figure out which ones to really use? Uh, yes, there is. Uh, uh, it's like consumer's report for doctors and patients. And four stars, three stars, two stars, one star. Um, and the um, uh, guideline clearinghouse, which is run by ARC, is going to become very selective about which guidelines are closed. And they will guidelines where the policies of the guideline developers um, uh, basically follow what the U.S. Preventive Services Task follows. So that's going to create, in my view, a situation where guideline developers that don't meet those standards are going to say, nobody's going to pay any attention to us unless we raise our game. So, um, Hopefully, we want to create a situation in which uh, guideline developers are competing to get the attention of, of people who are going to adopt them. So, and, 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 and it sounds as though uh, the uh, ARC is just about ready to say, if you don't, you don't follow the guidelines about conflict of interest, forget about being in the guidelines program. I know there are more questions. I'm also aware of the time and that some folks have to get on to other things. And I'm also aware that Gil was amazingly quiet. <laughs> but I want to, and those of you who I've seen your hands up, please come down and talk to Hal and ask your questions down here. Hal, thank you so much for doing great. Mm -hmm.